This podcast is created for farmers and powered by Pioneer Agronomy to bring you agronomic insights and proven solutions to fuel forward-thinking farming. Howdy folks, Carl Jorn here, Pioneer Field Agronomist for Northwest Indiana. I am joined as always by my colleagues and co-hosts, Ben Jacob and Brian Trader. How are you fellas? Doing good, Carl. How are you? I'm good. Brian? Very good, Carl. Glad to be here this morning. Excellent. Well, we are continuing on our series of getting to know your local agronomist, and today we are pleased to be joined by Dr. Eric Miller. Uh, Eric, welcome back to the podcast. It hasn't been too long, but glad to have you aboard. Happy to be here. Welcome, everyone. Excellent. Well, uh, Eric, for those that uh, may have missed our our first uh, of this series when we were talking about getting to know your agronomist, this idea came from our esteemed colleague, Brian Early, who had the pleasure of getting us kicked off in that endeavor. And so here we are following through um, to continue to peel back the curtain on who on earth you are besides the man that comes out of the white pickup truck to answer questions and talk pioneer products. And so that is a uh, that's what we're going to be talking about today. And uh, I guess as we start things off, you are the field agronomist for East Central Indiana. Um, and maybe tell us a little bit about your journey from when you entered the world to where you are today. Well, Carl, the, the, the first thing that I guess most everyone who knows me well, we'll understand this is whenever I roll out of the white pickup truck at the farm gate, there's nine times out of 10, a black Labrador who also barrels out of that white truck. At the <laughs> Very <farm>. true. <laughs> and so uh, there, there's uh, Jolene is my black lab and she goes, she goes with me almost everywhere. And I told this story, actually Jeff Tashney, uh, never heard this story and i i was telling it the other day and i don't know how it got brought up but anyhow so so whenever i started with pioneer we were the family was very new back to indiana so we came from from oklahoma state the university and and actually i got here ahead of my wife samantha who needed to finish out the semester teaching so i come back to indiana and it was me and a dog and basically a backpack full of stuff. And I didn't know anybody in the neighborhood, didn't really have a clue what I was getting into from an agronomy standpoint. So I, the dog came with me uh-huh. and, uh, and I, uh, I didn't know if it was okay. It was one of those deals where I'd rather ask for forgiveness than for permission. And I kept it under wraps. So I started, I guess, on the tail end of harvest in 2014. And I kept Jolene under wraps for almost an entire year. And it was harvest of 2015. And we were pulling a plot off on Saturday. And and Dave Henderson was actually going to be at this plot harvest on Saturday. And I thought, you know what, if, if anybody's going to say something, at least I could say it was Saturday and I didn't have I didn't have a, a choice in the matter. And uh, so Jolene was in the truck and I and, and plot harvest got done and Dave jumps in the truck with me 
and Jolene is stealthy in the back and and Dave and I are having conversation and all of a sudden his left arm like jumps up and there's a wet nose that comes up underneath his arm <laughs> in his armpit to say hello and Dave kind of jumps back startled says oh hi there oh I guess you have a dog oh I didn't know that <laughs> and before he ever said anything he goes Eric let me tell you a story he goes you know whenever I was an agronomist we had two young children and sometimes the my kids had to come with me to stuff like this. And he goes on to tell the story that uh, one day he forgot to roll the windows down and his kids, he found his kids laying on the floorboard in the back. And the comment was, is, yeah, well, it was much cooler down in the floorboard of the truck than, uh, than just sitting <laughs> in the seat. And he goes, I know how this goes. You, you got to, you just got to adapt sometimes. <laughs> that's great i uh so uh, <laughs> so jolene is as old with pioneer as what i am i got her basically whenever i started so she's she's nine and i'm going on my ninth season with pioneer no that's great i uh i made that attempt uh when i was in production eric we had just gotten a little australian shepherd and so same type of deal Lindsay was away at school and uh dog you know doesn't have this the fullest uh, ability in terms of holding on to its bladder uh, and so i tried to bring mine with me on a saturday to go scout some fields and uh you know my dog was pretty ornery still at that time didn't didn't quite follow uh, all the obedience calls knew his name and when i asked him to come back instead of wandering across the county road uh he, he didn't listen to me so that was the that was a one and done for uh for breeze in my my pursuit of uh, bringing along a companion every day. So envious of the relationship you and Jolene get to have, and I'm sure that uh, that the folks that see you uh, uh, on a more regular basis probably probably look forward to her presence too. Yeah, I. Uh, she's much more lethargic now than her young her yesteryear, but uh, it, it used to be that I big beans and small corn were an absolute no no. It, there was not a lot of going down the row with young crop, but anyhow, uh, whenever Eric shows up on the farm, it's usually in tow with a black Labrador. Got it. Uh, that's that's great. You know, so, back, uh, question: How I got here from where I was then? So, I was born and raised on a family-owned and operated corn and soybean farm in northwest Indiana, Plaskai County, uh, still in operation today. And and that's where really all of all of my knowledge and I guess grassroots of agriculture originated. And uh, I guess through the years I've I've always been on the farm helping where I can. And uh, even even today I get back to get my get the seat time get the seat time I need to to step away and and uh, actually be able to say I do it as opposed to talk about it it being production agriculture so and that's really where where everything kind of got started into play and uh you know did the ffa did the the the, the shop uh thing it, um, growing up i was never a 4-h person uh no reason why i wasn't i just never got interested in 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 4-h so i guess i am one of the few who i guess came through rural america on a farm uh, farm operation that was never involved with 4-H. I can't can't explain why I wasn't. Just never got interested in it. Um, 
did everything a, a country boy, I guess, was supposed to do. Grew up hunting and fishing. Uh, uh, days after school, I rode the bike back to the pond and uh, and went fishing as opposed to, I guess, coming home to do anything else or, or if there was work to do, do all that, that type of thing. Um, but uh, from there, you know, through high school, interested in ag, interested in production um and went to purdue i guess i i knew from uh, uh agronomy was the interest i had um i didn't know exactly i guess i went to school more interested in crop protection uh for mm-hmm. no particular reason other than that always coincided whenever i was home for summer was a lot of the spring that happened on the farm so if you just think about high school or you know the school time frame other than spring break you're at school during planting most i i guess i'm saying this in very general terms mm-hmm. but usually uh end of school coincided with a lot of post applications and and i guess into row cultivation back in the day with with 30 intro corn did a lot of that or, or grew up around it, but uh, but then herbicide applications really coincided whenever I was home around on the farm. And uh, so that's what I maybe went to school most interested in. And uh, and then everything evolved and I got really interested in this, the soil fertility side. Um, you know, I, I did, uh, you know, the geology portion of it, or I guess, uh, the physical nature of of soils i was you know the texture and uh parent material side of things i i guess i was interested in it enough but it was really the the chemistry side of of soil fertility that really i guess really really got my interest through school and that's what uh ended up lending itself to a, a master's degree at purdue worked with jim cambrotto and bob nielsen and then ultimately leading it to lead myself to oklahoma state now, uh, for for many of you that are listening, but probably not so much for Brian and Ben, I uh, the first time I got to meet Eric Miller was actually my first uh, W-2 type of job uh, working for Purdue, and I was weighing out um, Eric's five gram at a time soil samples for his research. So uh, uh, a younger just got his driver's license type of uh, Carl Jorn got introduced to, to Eric Miller at that time. And that was right at the beginning of Pandora Radio. So I remember sitting in the lab and thinking it was pretty cool. You could listen to uh, all sorts of uh, different music that was curated to your own taste. So uh, I always think of uh, those three things, five grams of soil, Pandora Radio, and uh, Eric Miller at the time. But uh, not what Carl, I called was that? Yeah. Was that Dave Mingle's old lab back in the annex? Is, is that the lab? You, I may not met Eric, but I spent a little bit. Well, I spent more than a little bit of time back in that lab in the day. So there, the with basement the of, uh, basement of plant soils, just down from the diagnostic lab, is where we spent a lot of hours. But Carl, now I have to, I have to say though, everybody has to earn their stripes. I I weighed soils and did um, uh, a lot of, I guess phosphorus adsorption work at the national soils lab for shalimar armstrong so every everybody's got to pay their dues coming up through the ranks um but no i i work for uh, 
I guess, Doug Smith at the Soil Erosion Lab. And uh, his graduate student at the time was Shalimar Armstrong, who's still up there at Purdue. And, uh, and uh, so that's, that's what I did. W- washed a lot of dishes, weighed a lot of soil. That that is too funny. That's that's not quite like the Gene Cady coaching tree, but it would be fun to see uh, who all has had their hands on the on the grinder uh, through <laughs> through the eons that that uh, that the the soil lab's been there. Uh, there, uh, that, yeah, that's too funny. So uh, Eric, interesting tidbit uh, that takes a, a tertiary turn. I guess during during high school, I did not always go back to the farm. And here's a tidbit about Eric's. Um, work coming through adolescence or going into adolescence and I was a a produce uh a produce guy at the local IGA grocery store Uh and so a lot of what I did during high school I uh I actually worked at the grocery store a good bit you know and uh I guess I worked 40 hours at the grocery store during high school during summers even and after school so Spent a lot of time at the grocery store. Oh, that's too funny. So you weren't you were you the paper plastic man or were you helping restock the shelves? Where did uh where where'd you find yourself there at the IGA? The the IGA was small enough that you were a jack of all trades. So uh uh a lot of a lot of uh paper plastic or double uh double paper, double plastic. Um that was a grocery store that paper was actually preferred. So mm-hmm. much less dumping it into plastic bags, uh, mopped a lot of floors, stocked a lot of shelves, pulled shelves. So whenever you go to the grocery store, if you're the first one there uh, and everything looks fully stocked, that's not it's not always full. You but you go down the, and pull the shelves to make it look like it's full of the evening. Got it. Um, yep. A lot of bread and milk. You know, that turns over the most, it seems like. So stocked a lot of milk and bread and produce. Uh, did not do anything in the meat department or the deli. Uh, so those were those were the, the full-time folks. But no, mop floors, sacked, sacked groceries, uh, stock shelves. Okay, so from the uh yeah from the depths of the iga uh over to the soil erosion laboratory and then you get to be uh, underpaid and overworked as a graduate student to finally rise up to go over uh over west uh to pick oklahoma state how did you land on that decision eric uh as you got done with your masters with bob and jim so i guess it was it's uh it's uh i guess uh inter said or uh or a not often talked about faux pas to receive all degrees from the same university. And whenever I started a, a master's degree, I thought a master's degree was it. Mm-hmm. Um, I never really thought about a PhD at that point in time. And uh, and actually, the first person I, I sat down with and talked about this was uh, George Van Skoik. And, uh, you know, I, I guess I had the flexibility to go on to a PhD and uh, just was on a fact-finding mission to figure out what, what the opportunities were if, if, uh, if, if I was a, a legitimate candidate for a PhD, so on and so forth. So after I got to, to the point of being convinced that a, a PhD was, was feasible, um, then it was, it was on to, uh, 
to looking for the university the right fit. And and I guess here's here's how I made the final decision on a PhD. And 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 I was fortunate enough to be in the ability to 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 do it. I guess I I didn't need to uh, I didn't necessarily need to get in the workforce to to make the ends meet at that point in time. And so that allowed a lot of flexibility. And secondly, I, I really boiled down to the fact of once I obtained it, no one could ever take it away. Mm-hmm. And I, I figured that there would potentially be a point in time where you didn't need it from a, from a, I guess, a professional standpoint. But the, the way I would describe a PhD is that it's, uh, it really hones the craft of the experimental design and thinking about what you want to accomplish. Uh, uh, so have your objective, make your hypothesis. Uh, go through the experimental design. It's a, the PhD is a sink or swim. Allow me to say this. A master's degree is very much turnkey from the standpoint that the professors pretty much set up the, the work, the experiment, and you as a master's student are really the execution of the project. The PhD is... Um, I did not have to obtain funding, but I know very many PhD students have to obtain funding. And then it's rationalize the funding. What are you hoping to accomplish with the funding provided? What's your hypothesis? What are you trying to accomplish? Has anything else been done or not? How is your research different? What is its uh, impact on the scientific uh, uh, curriculum? And then can you uh, design an experiment and come up with a results and a conclusion that confirms or uh, denies your your hypothesis? And then the other thing I'd say a PhD really did for me was is help fine tune communication skills, written and verbal. It just mm-hmm. give you a little bit more time to to hone the craft, if you will. So at any rate, that's. That's the simplest way I can boil down the PhD. And 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 uh, I, what I was interested in at the time was was kind of nitrogen use efficiency, but is also water use efficiency in, in corn production. So the the two universities, for no intents or purposes, why uh, um, boiled them down would be Kansas State and Oklahoma State. And actually, for the the second Dave Mangle reference of the morning. Uh-huh. Dave was was potentially my my major professor at Kansas State, and and Dave and I had been in conver- conversations for a, a good long while, and uh, and I actually went on a road trip. I I don't know what time frame this would have been, but I I drove to Manhattan, Kansas, and then I drove uh, from Manhattan to uh, to Stillwater, Oklahoma, and and back to Purdue, and kind of had two offers on the table and, and made the, made the decision. And, uh, and I talked about the funding piece and, and the only thing, um, the only thing was uh, with, with Mangles, with, with Mangles group was, is I was going to be his last student. A retirement was imminent. And, uh, and at that point in time, he kind of talked about, I'm pretty sure I have funding set up. I think it'll get you all the way there. And, uh, (laughs) 
and that wasn't quite maybe the the response I was hoping for. And Oklahoma sure. State had a little bit more financial backing there. What's interesting is that the the a key difference at um, I guess some of these different institutions is is origination of that money and. And uh, Jim Camberato, Bob Nielsen, the rest of the extension specialists do have an opportunity to get some money out of the corn and soybean checkoff. And, and that's where a lot of students get, uh, get some funding from or help maintain their project. Um, at Oklahoma State, there's, actually, there's also a fertility checkoff. Hmm. And, and, and um, that's where the primary funding for that soil fertility department came from and so uh there was a, a lot more dollars available at oklahoma state than anywhere else that i've really been and actually they split that money with their ag and bioengineering department and that's where a lot of i felt like a lot of cross collaboration came in where a fertility or a an a agronomy science person would say i have a cool idea but i don't know how to implement in, mm-hmm. in production agriculture. And so ABE would come in and say, okay, what are you trying to do? We're going to figure this out. And, and as an example, a predecessor to a student at Oklahoma State, uh, and you guys, anybody listening, there's, I think there's an article in the agronomy sciences that talk about corn kernel orientation right. and how it's placed in the trench or how the, the leaves then are oriented with the row perpendicular or in the row basically you can get the corn plant to grow that was all attempted to be done let's see here that original work started in 2008 or 9 at oklahoma state and i came in on the heels of that where we went into the greenhouse and we're putting kernels Uh and and i remember having conversations in our lab about the limitation to that so so it all works like the way you orient the seed in the seed furrow you can influence how the leaves grow i mean you can make it work the challenge was abe could not figure out how to get a planter plate to place the kernel but there was a whole bunch of work done back at that time with at oklahoma state about just that so, but at any rate, so I, I landed on Oklahoma State, um, and uh, and for me it was a it was a business trip. This was not this was a this was a I wanted to see what Oklahoma had to had to uh, was like, but I wanted to get in and out as as soon as possible. And and Dr. Bill Ron, my major advisor down there, uh, he, he and I were on the same page in that we were going to hit the ground running. We're going to get this knocked out and we're going to go on down the road. So actually my PhD lasted, uh, took less time than my master's degree did. Yeah, that's, that's pretty exceptional when you think of, uh, you know, standard master's program runs you somewhere around that you need a couple seasons worth of data. So assuming it all comes together timeline wise and you get written up and defended, you're looking at a, a few year commitment and, PhDs, I feel like it's at least that could tack on a couple extra years, depending on, uh, you know, the the success or failure or the fine tuning of what the project goal is. And so to be able to to, uh, you know, execute on that, quote unquote, business trip, Eric, uh, so that you weren't stuck in Stillwater, Oklahoma for you know, half a decade. That's 
that's a big accomplishment, um, you know, for both you and your major professors. So, so kudos to doing that. Uh, along the way, it's still water, though. There was another, I guess, monumental achievement in that department. So tell us about uh, the personal life and, and uh, how you find yourself where you are today. Yeah, so uh, Samantha and I met at uh, at Purdue. She was actually working on her PhD with uh, with Herb Ohm. That's right. And, yep. Yep. And so uh, in Herb's program, so uh, let me let me back up and just say how Samantha uh, got her undergraduate at the University of Florida. Mm-hmm. How she got to to uh, West Lafayette from Gainesville was as her advisor. Uh, from the University of Florida actually took a job change and and went to went to Purdue, and so she was, I guess, uh, followed Lori Snyder a little bit in the sense that uh, that's how she got exposed to Purdue. Herb Ohm, uh, a lot of his uh, students, his graduate students, never did a master's, and it was a straight through uh, into a PhD in in that plant breeding space. So I met Samantha at Purdue. And uh, we uh, here's a here's a fun fact for the group. Our our defense uh, Samantha refers to it as our defense defense anniversary, but uh, <laughs> she defended her PhD in the morning of the same day I defended my master's in the afternoon. That's, that's and pretty cool. So, uh, we were all on, and that was I guess April April something. I should know it. It's it's important, I guess. <laughs> uh, so we both uh, graduated in May, and uh, and from there she went to Washington D.C. and I went to Oklahoma State. Uh, she spent a year in D.C. and then uh, was looking for employment after that, and that's how she got hired on as a as a teaching faculty at Oklahoma State. So she taught introductory crop science at Oklahoma State while we were there. Um, but. Uh, um, I'll tell you, so I'll tell you another uh, story how, um, so during her time at, at, at Washington, D.C., I was thinking real hard about uh, uh, proposing, and uh, in, the, in the United States Capitol, if, uh, if you're ever to visit the United States Capitol, um, and you look, you go to that central, uh, I'll call it the, the foyer, the uh, the rotunda up, a rotunda and you look straight up and you look at all the paint paintings all the way around there mm-hmm. um you can actually go all the way to the top uh and this would have been in 2000 and uh uh gosh maybe 2011 or so maybe 2010 2011 t- 2012 somewhere in there but you had to have an, an active sitting congressman or senator to uh, uh, basically accompany you to the top. And so her dad and uh, and his wife and Samantha and I were accompanied by uh, Stephen Fincher, who is the who was the uh, 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 representative for West Tennessee at the time, accompanied us and took us all the way to the top of the Capitol building. And uh, you got to take a lot of stairs, but actually the rotunda, there's a, you, you're, you're basically right up there. You can, you can touch the paintings if you wish. 
and then there's stairs to get out to the very top. So if you're looking at the United States Capitol uh, from the outside, there's a, I guess, a, a Native American on top, I think, or uh, I can't remember who's exactly on top. And then there's some pillars underneath that. And then there's a, you'll see a banister right underneath that. And you can walk all the way around and look right down the, uh, right down the re reflection pool to the Washington Monument uh, in one direction, I guess, over a lot of city in the other. But anyhow, so make a short story long, I had the engagement ring in my pocket. And I was like, well, you know, who else is going to have the opportunity to propose at the top of the, the Capitol building. Uh, uh -huh. But I never had the opportunity to talk to her dad about it prior to talk, prior to all this going on. Uh, and so we went to the top of the Capitol building with the engagement ring in my pocket, came back down. And, and after I proposed a few weeks later, I told her that story and she was, she was pissed. She's like, what, <laughs> I mean, what, <laughs> you dropped the ball. Like, why didn't you do this? <laughs> And then I and I finally talked to her dad about it, and he and he just laughed at me. He goes, "You pansy, you should have just done it." And I, I, you know, I was going to be okay with it, but anyhow, I never had the opportunity to talk to him about it. But we went all the way to the top of the Capitol building, and uh, <laughs> never did it. But anyhow, that's that's the story of of what could have been as a story for my for my wife. Well, when we, uh, you know, whenever all of us agronomists get our uh, our day on the silver screen and they're telling the story of Eric Miller, uh, played by Brad Pitt or whomever, you know, I'm sure they'll edit the screenplay to have the the proposal take place at, at the top of the Capitol building. So, uh, Eric, you and Samantha, their sins got married. And then t tell us more about um, the, the Miller clan from there. The Miller clan has grown by two. Um, we've got our, our oldest son, Max, who, uh, who is seven, uh, will be, uh, will be a first grade graduate going into second grade. And our, uh, our daughter Maureen will be five and going into, uh, going into kindergarten. So we'll have, we'll be orientation at kindergarten the spring of year 2023. So, uh, we'll have two two in school and uh they're they're a lot of fun and i and i'll say i've been astonished as max has gone through first grade how how quick they learn and uh it's pretty pretty amazing to see how well he can read now just one year through first uh through school uh through first grade so that's the that's the home front max uh, so i'll uh i'll say this max very much enjoys uh going to the farm uh, uh his least favorite piece of equipment to ride in is the combine because okay. and i quote it's boring uh he always <laughs> wants to be on the go uh, but uh anyhow i've i've actually got uh, one of his pictures on the uh on the wall here in the uh in my office but every monday in first grade they have what they call uh uh, some share they share what they've done over the weekend well anyhow so with uh with auto steer it makes it a whole lot easier for him to be the driver of, of the course tractor. yeah and so we uh we he and i were spreading fertilizer 
this fall. And uh, so an auto steer tractor pulling a, a spinner spreader buggy. And uh, so we got to the point where I would initiate the turn, you know, the steering wheel. He would mm-hmm. turn it the rest of the way, engage auto steer, and then adjust, you know, uh, engage the hydraulics to basically make it the the, the walking floor engage again. And uh, so he was, he pretty much with a lot of assistance, some assistance, I would say, spread a good bit of fertilizer while sitting, you know, kind of on my lap. But anyhow, so then I, I come home then and, and he goes to school and and draws this picture and talks about, yeah, I spread fertilizer in the tractor. Like there's a lot more to it, but mm-hmm. but for a very suburban elementary school with, a, I'm sure, a teacher that has very little, I guess, working background of the context in behind that picture. I'm sure that was quite alarming in probably <laughs> hearing a six-year-old at the time say, yeah, I drove the tractor and spread fertilizer. And uh, and the other interesting part about this is the picture has both pink fertilizer and yellow fertilizer. And at the time we were spreading the blend of, of potash and elemental sulfur. And so we were talking about the difference in, in fertilizer and actually in his picture for first grade, he has majority pink, but also yellow fertilizer that he was spreading. So he's a, uh, he's a lot of fun. And, and uh, I think he's going to, going to have the, the farming itch hopefully, or I suspect as much as he grows up and Maureen, Maureen just wants to be a princess. You know, she, uh, she pretty much wears a tiara uh, every day with high heels and just, uh, you know, wants to be a princess. <laughs> That's great. Well, uh, I, I'd assume they'll both be quick studies like they're like they're folks. Um, so Eric is as uh, Max was out there helping you spread were were those on your acres or Steve's acres? Uh, just, you know, in terms of consistency of application, did you did you afford him the opportunity uh, on the right right piece of ground or? Oh no, he uh, the trial run gets put on Papaw. Uh, there it is. Carl, Carl, uh, you know, <laughs> we're we're gonna we're gonna have an experiment on on Papaw, but you know, the map shows that it all got spread. So you know, I have proof. <laughs> I have proof that it was done as accurate as possible. <laughs> yeah, too funny. Uh, Ben, Brian, anything that you guys wanted to ask Eric that uh, that I haven't had a chance to tap into yet today? Yeah, Eric. I mean, it's 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 great to hear about your family and how you know you progressed uh, you know through your education. But so you you've worked for time pioneer your entire, to say, professional career post school. How um, why why pioneer and why you know Central Indiana? That's a that's a great question. I uh, I tell uh, I tell students this all the time. If I'm ever asked to kind of give my perspective on on uh, uh, grad on I guess leading into graduation and uh, and uh, let's see here. I knew that I was going to be a December graduate just how things were how things were working out and and actually that was kind of if you think about graduate school and everything that goes on is 
from a from a field study, you've got a you got a harvest, and then you have to um, write it up. Then everything's got to be approved. You've got to defend, and so there there's a short period of time from a from a field work perspective to to get everything buttoned up. And actually, that was a big advantage for a Southern United States university in the fact that we we were picking corn uh, many times before Labor Day. Uh, but we were also planting corn. I remember a lot of years where March Madness was going and we were we mm-hmm. were planting our corn. So the, the growing season as a whole is March to August. But what that allowed versus, say, like thinking about something in the Midwest, uh, if you didn't pull your plots off until November, you know, a December, December graduation date was almost a pipe dream. But but something pulling plots off in August allowed you enough time to, to then get everything done to, to graduate in December. So we had that. I kind of had that uh, in the back of my mind moving forward. But I, I started looking for employment um, the, the the spring. Uh, the spring of that last last year, and actually, I I sat down with Dave Henderson and Jason Dodd for an open agronomist position while I was back in Indiana for Memorial Day weekend. And so, whenever I came home for a for a quick trip over Memorial Day. I actually sat down with with Dave and Jason at that point in time. So you think about that. That's a that's May. Knowing you're not going to start until, you know, the, December at the earliest that that following year. And and as it turned out, um, they were willing to to wait on me to get finished up uh, before starting a for, before starting a job. But Ben, how how I landed here is it was really fortuitous just from the standpoint I. Oklahoma was fun. It wasn't real fun. And I was ready to get back closer to home, uh, so to speak. Like I said, it was kind of a business trip. And, uh, you know, I would say production agriculture in Oklahoma was cows first, crop second. And uh, here's here's a a little bit of trivia. So Oklahoma has about 5 million acres of wheat. So five million acres of wheat. The state itself is much bigger than Indiana. Uh, so five million acres of wheat, and 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 half of that wheat crop gets grazed by cattle uh, all the way through mm-hmm. tillering up until and they try to pull it off by you know joining. But half of it is mismanaged. Half of the half is mis- mismanagement to the point that it just gets eaten out by the the crop and it never really goes to grain the the wheat itself is just more or less a forage and so the cows are always uh priority over and above the grain harvest if you will and i was i guess i was always brought up that you know the bushels paid the bills and i didn't think about the 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 bushels fed the the stock for them that to be the so I, i never got my head wrapped around production in in oklahoma as a whole uh so I was looking to get back to the Midwest, and it just so happened there was a there was a job open here in Indiana at that point in time that got me close enough. What what I always 
what I what I had to work through was I had other opportunities, I guess, on the table um, that weren't in Indiana. And so, you know, I I always kind of wanted to whenever I was interviewing for jobs. I was more interested in starting a career than just taking a first job. And what I mean by that is I took the time to invest in myself. And I didn't want to be uh, in motion. In other words, you, you can, there's a lot of opportunities that you can become employed and you might bounce around a little bit before you actually land more permanently. Uh, like, you know, every company seems like they have their own trainee type positions. And so I was more interested in a career than a first job. And, and what Pioneer had available at that point in time was just that. And so that's that's kind of what brought me back to Indiana. And like I said, it was close enough to home. And and the other thing was is is of course I'd love to have been back in northwest Indiana at the at at the family farm, but the challenge was is to gain employment then for another terminal degree in the family. It's one thing to to have a terminal degree on one, you know, for one spouse, let alone both. It was actually very fortuitous then to be have this area open that we could live on the outskirts of Indianapolis, which mm -hmm. has a lot more availability of trying to employ two PhD folks as opposed to one. So everything kind of really worked out in the long run, but uh, it was just so happened it was open at the time that I was looking. And uh, and the biggest thing, and Dave Henderson has told me that is super uncommon to hire somebody and wait. And uh, and I can't think of anybody else that's happened for, but uh, he allowed that to do so. I'm sure Jason Dodd uh, granted his blessing at that point in time as the area. Or, uh, actually, that was still the business unit days. There was Carlos Hinchke would have been Jason Dodd's boss at that point in time. So, uh, but anyhow, that's how that's how it all worked out. Good stuff. So. Uh... Eric, with you and Sam and the kids residing on the outskirts of Indianapolis, what what do you all find yourselves doing in your free time when you're not out with Jolene uh, scouting crops and answering questions? What uh, what does Eric get to do um, when he's not not out and about in the white pickup truck? So the uh, it, it was it was it became very obvious whenever we were house hunting that. Um, a house on 40 acres on the outskirts of Indianapolis was not going to be <laughs> uh, probably financially possible. And anything that did have something close to it was uh, very much geared toward equestrian type of livestock. And that sure. wasn't necessarily what I was after either. Um, and so Samantha grew up on, on the Gulf in Pensacola, uh, actually the Grand Lagoon, uh, part of the intercoastal waterway of the Gulf. And uh, so I, I, get, I made the comment whenever we were house hunting that uh, I guess if I move you back to Indiana, we're gonna have to be on water somewhere. So we, uh, we looked at several houses in and around Indianapolis on water, and landed on one here on Morse Reservoir in Noblesville. So, um, you know, during the summer, uh, we're very much uh, uh, drowning worms off the uh, off the dock mm -hmm. or the seawall, and uh, Max and Maureen are very adept at 
catching catching brim or bluegill uh, off the shallows next to the dock, or we'll go out for a putts on the on the boat of the evenings. So that's uh, we do get a way to do that, uh, I guess, on work nights, and and also it's been nice. I I never grew up this way, but you know the the nearest house from me was a mile away growing up, and so uh, a a gaggle of elementary school kids was never uh, popular. I guess it is it's foreign to me, but but where we live, we actually have two homes consecutively here that all have. Uh, kindergarten through second grade and there's about six oh. kids total and so each night that's even remotely uh, uh nice they're all out playing playing in uh, everyone's backyards and kind of roaming so it's it's been nice for the kids to grow up in a neighborhood that's that's a foreign concept to me but they're going to have close-knit friends because of it so uh, and then on the weekends uh, as appropriate then we uh i make it back to the farm or or uh uh, try to help out as much as I can uh, as needed uh, there. So, but, you know, we find ourselves traveling. So her dad's in uh, West Tennessee and her mom's in Florida. So we find, uh, we find a lot of, a lot of road time on the I-65 corridor, so to speak, going south and on a pretty frequent basis or as much as we can. Very good. Well, uh, Mr. Schrader, I know that that you and Eric have had the opportunity to work closely here together now for nearly a decade. Anything that uh, that we have not tapped into that you that you want to make sure give uh, give voice to it today? I, Eric's done a good job of covering it. I I just sat there. I mean, I, Eric and I have had a lot of opportunities to uh, get into each other's background, and so it's been fun to have him uh, share some of the things. A couple of the stories I was aware of. I was. The key one was I was waiting until we got to the point where Sam showed up at uh, Oklahoma. Um, he's incredibly proud of the fact that he essentially followed his wife to Oklahoma State. So <laughs> it all uh, worked but, out. <laughs> yep, yeah, it sure did for you. No doubt about it. <clears throat> you know, I, I would say that has been, uh, you know, initially there was a lot of, you know, you th you just were worried about obtaining the degree, but after after all the dust has settled, I I think that's been a challenge, and from the standpoint that uh, two terminal degree professionals has been kind of a challenge to to get employed, and that was all pre obviously pre merger with Dow, and and since what you know it's been very fortuitous now being on the outskirts of Indianapolis that. You know the global headquarters is uh, only 40 40 minute drive away now, and so that's uh, that's provided a lot more opportunity than that it has. Yeah, for the for those that aren't aren't hip to uh, you know Eric's family life, his his wife Sam is in the employee of Corteva, and brother Brian uh, is a pioneer sales rep back in the home area. So uh, very much uh, you know still still uh you know it's not just the eric miller story we're telling today but the story of the uh the miller family involved with uh pioneer and corteva at this point which is which is pretty cool to say um so hopefully that keeps them tethered here for for as long as possible or otherwise the whole flock might be leaving the pond um you know type of deal but uh all jokes aside eric this was a lot of fun for me um getting to know you a little bit better and uh your story uh anything that you'd like to leave folks with that we haven't had a chance to tap into today I, uh, 
I, I would just say that uh, there's not a one size fits all way to how all of us conduct business day to day. And uh, I think as a listener, I think what'll, what should become very evident in this series that, that Carl and Brian and Ben are, are going through is every, everybody can come from different backgrounds and, and styles and still get uh, accomplish uh, the job day to day. You know, when I first started, Dave, you know, I was, I was actually kind of expecting a, a guide of sorts, like what the hell to do day to day. And Dave, I remember basically giving me a ledger of, of names and saying, these are, here's your reps. Uh, I'd contact them. And, you know, it's just from that, you know, from there, it kind of just manifested in what, what it is I do from a day to day, but there is not a one size fits all. There's not a uh, approach to how the pioneer agronomist works and, and we're allowed the, the opportunity to make it our own. And, um, you know, I've just crafted out what I enjoy doing. Uh, I guess what I, what I, what I'm good at and, uh, just try to do the best that I, that I can do. But I think that, uh, there's, there's a lot of different background. There's a lot of different folks that can be equally, uh, equally successful by just you know with with radically different uh styles and and background and i think that'll be really really neat to see this play out through this series and hear about it very good well appreciate those uh those parting thoughts uh so for those of you on the other ends of these microphones uh as you're listening today and you want to learn more about the story of Eric Miller, uh, you can do so by reaching out to your Pioneer sales representative and they can uh, find a way to contact him from there. Uh, Brian and Ben, before we uh, reach you guys, uh, I guess as folks want a little preview of what your day-to-day job looks like and what you find yourself doing on the weekdays and weekends, uh, how can they follow along? Ben, I'll start with you. Yep, you can follow along with me on Twitter at the Ben Jacob or on Facebook at Ben Jacob Agronomy. Mr. Schrader? Yep, best place to follow along with uh, all things Schrader would be uh, on Instagram at B underscore K underscore Schrader. And for you, Carl? And close things out uh, on Facebook at Seajorn Agronomy and on Twitter at Seajorn. With that, thank you for joining us for the second part of our Getting to Know Your Agronomist series and listening to the Indiana Pioneer Agronomy podcast. Uh, We will look forward to visiting with you come next Wednesday. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Pioneer Agronomy team. Be sure to visit pioneer.com backslash podcasts to access additional episodes and learn more about our extensive on-farm data and innovative digital tools that are fueling forward-thinking farming.